and we just called it The Matrix, and of course it's on Fillmore Street, so it's Matrix Fillmore. It's an appropriate name. Next door back at that time was the Pier Street Annex, and as I explained to you, I was 21 when I first came to this club. We'd go next door and get our hard liquor, have a couple of drinks in the Pier Street Annex, and then come back over here, maybe inhale once or twice. There was a dance studio above. Sheila Zagorios, a nice lady who had a dance studio up there, and we tried to be a good neighbor. But as you imagine, we weren't the favored nation down here, being a lot of, shall we say, countercultural <laughs> businessmen in the neighborhood. start this podcast with all our jumping here we recorded this in the middle of september and uh, i'm a little bit behind on editing podcasts but some of the stuff we say in regards to uh speculating on record store days is of course going to be uh off but i do think it's still a good discussion so i left it in about other future possible releases we talked about i think the kiss the stone the complete matrix tapes bootleg from the 90s uh, I did go back and listen to that, and they did cut out the banter in between, I believe, on the version that I that I, that I I listened to. So that's just to clarify that. You'll hear that later. Also, a special thanks to my wife. She did the artwork for this podcast. I don't know. Sometimes it doesn't show up on Apple. But if you get a chance to find the post where on, on social media or maybe go to Spotify, look at this. My wife asked her if she could do something, and she knocked it out of the park. She did the the sort of a style very similar to the uh, Boot Your Butt uh, box set from the early 2000s that the Doors put together. And she, I told her to sort of mimic that with me sort of being the one getting kicked, like the guy getting, you know, getting kicked. So she did a really good job on that. So thank you to her for that because it turned out really awesome. And going forward on all my on all the bootleg episodes we do. I'm going to have that on the as the artwork and just sort of change it up a little bit. Um, this is with one of my friends, Travis Williamson. He is really knowledgeable, and he just has so much information. And I hope you guys enjoy this interview. I'm not going to waste any more time. Hello, and welcome to Opening the Doors, a podcast dedicated to the doors and everything in between. I am your host, Bradley Netherton. Joining me today is somebody, if I remember correctly, the way we met, I believe it's probably an innocuous post I made on one of the... Uh, the mini doors forums and and you gave me more information about it uh, if i had to guess probably something like new orleans or dallas but i think that's how we sort of met and that's sort of how i met a lot of people organically in the community before i started the podcast was getting involved and sort of looking at stuff this is somebody who is you know one of the most knowledgeable people i've met who helped vince trainer on his book has done a lot of other things well brad i must i must remind you that if i am a knowledgeable Doors fan. I'm also a very forgetful Doors fan. My name is Travis. I grew up listening to The Doors from probably 1997 onwards. And ever since I found the original Lizard Lounge Forum back in whenever it opened, which I imagine would be 2001, The Doors have been a mainstay in my life. Even before that, actually. Probably in 1999 was when I first got tapes in the mail from a gentleman in Melbourne, Australia, who was doing two for one trades. Discussing a topic like the Matrix is uh, going to be an exercise in 
delving back into the memories of online forum posts and America Online. Remember the AOL? There was an AOL platform which was like MSN. All the American fans had AOL and I had to figure out how to download that in an era where I was probably not very computer literate, but it was the early 2000s. So it was possible, but you couldn't just Google everything like you can now. Yeah. And I think let's dive into this a second because I get it's pretty obvious. You know, your name's Travis Williamson, of course. But one of the things people are probably going to tell right away is that you are you have a very distinct Australian accent and you are one of the most knowledgeable Doors fans I know. But you live and have always lived in Australia, in uh, South Adelaide. Is that correct? That's right. I was born in Adelaide, South Australia, and here I have since lived. So how do you discover the doors? You said you discovered them in 97. Uh, how do you discover the doors? What is your first doors experience, I guess? The way I remember it, and I've tried searching for information about this and was unsuccessful, but the way I recall it was, it was New Year's Day, 1997, January 1, 1997, and the Oliver Stone Doors movie was on TV. So my dad and I watched this movie together. I would have been 11, almost 12. And it, we had a pretty unorthodox relationship. I remember like smoking a massive joint with my dad at the age of at the tender age of 11. You know, which for all you listeners out there is not something I would advise you to do with your own children. <laughs> uh but mark that one off the list real quick. Okay. Okay, continue. Just uh, just keep that in mind. But I remember distinctly the opening like desert montage of, of that film. And actually, it's been many years since I've seen it, so I could be remembering incorrectly, but there are these shots of the desert and Riders on the Storm is just raining over the desert like that, you know? And that, that was the moment that I was, and that's the opening scene, I was just locked in. Yeah, and I mean, that is, I talked to Randall uh, Johnson about that and, and yeah, that I mean it has the poetry scene to begin with, but then it jumps right into the to that beautiful sprawling desert scene. So I mean that is definitely something that uh, is evocative, something that's enticing. And Riders is such a great introduction, an introductory song to listen to. Uh, probably a lot more palatable than when the music's over. <laughs> Somehow that was my first door song, and I I loved it. And and maybe it's and I think me and you have talked about it personally before. It's it's uh, there's something that just takes hold when you're a Doors fan, and it seems to be a conversation I have regularly with all my guests is you have to be a unique type of person and you have to sort of be seeking something out sometimes to be, uh, to find the doors or sort of be even nerdy to an extent in certain things. I know you're into film. Tell us a little bit about that because you actually work in the film industry. Yeah. So I work in the film and television industry as a sound recordist and boom operator here in Australia. The film industry is just another corporate industry, I guess, but we work long and hard sort of like tradespeople. And we bring other people's ideas to life, and sometimes we make our own ideas. And there is a cool part of that, though. I mean, what it will all because I guess people don't, you know, I work in like a factory. People don't say, "Man, I, I remember seeing you." You know, I've I've held some of your plugs you've produced from the plant you work at. You know, but some people may <laughs> may see your name in like the credits of something. You know, like a documentary you worked on. Uh, is there any documentaries you've worked on that people? I mean, maybe. I don't know if they would have seen them or not, but anything that you're particularly proud of or you think stands out on your catalog or that you've been credited in? This is a tricky one because because people do often, you know, approach or especially when you're out there like as a single man and you're meeting women and stuff and people always 
ask what you do for a living. And because television and film is such a huge part of everyone's lives, I think it's actually when you step back and think how ubiquitous like the visual medium and like content is, uh, the role it plays in our lives is huge. And, you know, Morrison even wrote, look where we worship, you know, and look where we worship now. In his time, it was, he was, when Morrison used to talk about shamanism, it always seemed a bit gross to me, but actually he meant it, and it makes sense now to me that it made sense to him as the rock and roll generation looked up to people like him. He was the, the false idol that people were worshipping, you know. And I think, of course, uh, the, f- the films and the movie stars were always there, probably more so before the rock and roll. But now, what we are worshipping now, I don't know what you would call it. It's like almost like a flow of information, a flow of content. And there's so much out there with the streaming platforms and the 24-hour news cycle that I often have people approach me and ask, what have you worked on? Have you worked on anything I would know? Yeah. And I always forget the things that I've worked on because when you're in a film shoot, it's like a whirlwind that takes you on a 10-week journey and your body is owned by the job and you work and sleep sometimes and you continue working and you eat while you work and that's really all you can do. And after, it just all gets deleted from my memory and and I don't know what people like and what people don't like, but... I would say all the stuff I've worked on ends up on a streaming platform like Stan, which is an Australian streamer. Um, Some of it's on Netflix. Some of it's been on Fox. uh, Some of it's been on Amazon. You know, here in Australia, everyone knows all the Wolf Creek stuff, the Wolf Creek franchise. I just did a film called The Royal Hotel, which is going to premiere at the Adelaide Film Festival. And that's starring Julia Garner from Ozark, yeah, Hugo, yeah. Hugo Weaving. I think that will be a successful film, an independent film by an Australian filmmaker named Kitty Green. And she also did a film called The Assistant with Julia Garner, which was really good. And I'm expecting Raw Hotel to be good. And as an independent film, I think, especially because, well, it, it was just made by, uh, you know, someone with her own creative vision. And I don't think she had too many people climbing up her back, telling her what she had to do. So I think that could be a good film. But a lot of it is just corporate TV, you know. I mean, how many how many 10-part TV series can you do which sort of come and go and, and feel proud about? I mean, it's the industry I work in, so I can't bite the hand that feeds me. But I, I can't say, like, we all want to say that we've worked on, like, the next Mad Men or something, something that's so huge. But it hasn't come along yet. That's not to say that it won't, but it hasn't yet. I mean, I worked on the Mortal Kombat film that was shot here in South Australia. Everyone seems to know that. Which is great. I love I love that. Personally, I, I'm a fan of some of that, the, the more, more schlocky sort of stuff. I don't know what you'd call that, but I really enjoyed that. But I think you hit on a great point and a good pivot point I think we can work on. Uh, Jim, you know, you talked about Jim, talked about the idols that we worship, you know, the, the people that we look at, the television and how, how, I mean, if you think about it, really, around the the middle of the you know the the twenty twentieth century, like when TV's just getting big, you had people like Elvis on TV, 
variety shows were huge. Ed Sullivan show, as we know, was Doors fans and stuff like that. People yeah. went from hearing, you know, to having their, their musical experiences sort of confined to the what could fit on a seven or twelve inch acetate, you know, or or vinyl pressing and what they could hear on their radio to actually seeing these people. They didn't have to just look at pictures. They didn't just have to look at magazines. They got to see Jim and the, the Doors perform. They got to see Elvis uh, dressed up with a dog perform, you know. I, I mean, it, it, it really was like a new era and something, I think, that changed the face of uh, of culture, of, of music culture, and sort of pushed pop into something different. And you see, like, them trying to find their footing. Like, if you look at, like, some of the shows, like uh, American Bandstand, it had sort of a cool aspect, and you'd have the audience and you have them perform. And then sometimes like top of the pops might have them just dancing around. Just it, like, how do you film? How do you, I mean, it's sort of like you're not even seeing the band perform. You're just sort of filming people dancing to the music. And I know top of the pops had performances by the Beatles and, and they did have performances, but I guess it's just the, the yin and the yang of people trying to find the format. Well, I think, uh, I think there's a modern reference there, Brad. I, I thinking about that, you see people do reaction videos. You watch a video of someone watching a video or listening to a song. And there are some great reaction videos of young people listening to The Doors for the first time as well. And I think maybe that concept of filming a bunch of kids or teenagers dancing to a song on a variety show like that, that's almost a reaction video. Like, so it's obviously, it's obviously a corporate promotion for the band and someone's talked about that behind the scenes and someone's getting paid, but it's kind of a reaction video in a way. Yeah. So the more things change, the more things stay the same, I guess would be a good, a good way to put that, you know? Yeah. I mean, we're definitely, we're not just worshiping the the binge element of television now. If you're young enough, I guess, and I, I don't consider myself necessarily young enough to partake in this part of culture, but but influencers and uh, TikTokers and Instagrammers, you know, YouTubers are sort of like probably like the boomers of the online world now. Yeah. But, but hey, you know, that's all part of this landscape of idol worship that we live in today. Yeah. And speaking of, I think that's a good, a good way to segue into our next point, because speaking of idol worship before Jim Morrison became this rock idol, this rock god, one of the first performances recorded, and I guess, I guess it wasn't the, you know, the, necessarily the first. We have others we'll talk, maybe mention later. But one of the, I guess, right when they're on the precipice of sort of launching their career, this is probably the closest recorded one before, well, I guess this was March of 67. But anyway, close to the to the success of Light My Fire and, you know, in the summer of 67, you know. And we have this recording, something we're going to talk about tonight is the Matrix bootlegs and we're not going to get into the shows necessarily. I wanted to, I've got a guest on Tarn Stefanos was on the Boston show. He wanted to cover this and I wanted to dive into that with him. But one thing me and you were going to, we're sort of talking about before this is, you know, what, what exactly as far as what, where, what path did, how did the bootlegs get out there? You know, what is the 2008 release? You know, it, it, there's just a whirlwind of sometimes misinformation. Sometimes some people may think disinformation. I, I don't know. There, there's a lot of information out there that I don't, we don't know could be correct could not be correct and and there's some question you know there's things unknown and things known and in between are, are the doors and here we are let's talk about that i want to dive into the matrix shows so do you remember hearing the matrix shows for the first time or the first time you were because you were in the tape trading circles correct i think it was probably 1998 
when I first bought a batch of bootlegs from a record store here in Adelaide called Andromeda Music. And that record store was run by a guy who passed away very recently. His name was Ian Bell. And he was very well known. And he was basically like a super rock fan, a pop music fan in general. And he made friends with, he was a photographer and he made friends with anyone who toured through to South Australia. And I mean, there would be, a throng of fans and paparazzi waiting for David Bowie at the airport. And David Bowie would single Ian out and say, Ian, hey, how are you going? It's good to see you again. It's Things like that happened to him. And he had a record store named Andromeda Music. And, you know, back in those days, you could get fined hefty amounts for selling bootleg LPs. So there was always a section called New Releases or something like that. I think it was called. And it was bootlegs. And so I bought... Miami 69, the 1993 Italian bootleg CD, which was a cleaned up version, I think, of the Doors Collector's magazine tape that circulated in 93, perhaps. And I bought an LP called Roadhouse Blues, which was a high generation copy of the Forum audience tapes. And I bought another LP called Whiskey, Mystics and Men, which had some Matrix stuff on it. And the great thing about that was there was, you couldn't skip the songs. It was just on that particular record, it was just one chunk. There were no delineation between the songs. And there was a lot of in-between song banter. The most interesting of which was like a real fun and jovial off-mic moment between Jim and Ray where they're talking about playing Moonlight Drive and they're singing yeah, let's swim to the moon. And they're laughing and sort of cajoling off mic. And the 12 people who were there probably weren't even paying attention, you know. And that snippet of in-between song banter with all the other banter, actually, between all the other tracks in the whole set was removed from the official release. You know, you can only speculate they did that to save space or to make it smooth and clean because... Some of those gaps were quite long. Doors traditionally left a lot of gaps between songs. I mean, they'll be playing a 12,000-seat auditorium in 1970, and they'll leave an awkward gap in between songs while they sit and debate what to play next. The audience will get restless. You know, stadium rock was an emergent phenomenon, and the Doors either didn't realise that or didn't care. But at The Matrix, as you said, it was the beginning of their career, Light My Fire wasn't a hit yet. They were playing a very small club and it was almost like a paid rehearsal. And in between songs, they would joke and chat and obviously talk about the arrangement of their material, which was still evolving. As you hear in Light My Fire, they revert back to the original arrangement, which you almost hear them play at the London Fog. In between two songs at the London Fog, you can hear Robbie strum a couple of open chords And someone in the audience yells out, baby, you can light my fire. And then they go into a slow blues or something. But um, you know that that was the original arrangement of the tune where Krieger opens it with the guitar. And they were still playing it that way despite the album having been recorded in August 66. But it's unfortunate that this in-between song chatter that maybe to the general consumer is not that interesting, but for a completist like me or you... 
it's a gold mine because it puts you in I think it puts you in the scene a little more. It's not just music at that point, it's an experience. It's almost like time travel. It's almost like being there to be able to crank it up in the ear- earphones. And this bootleg Whiskey Mystics and Men had a good portion of that stuff on there. And from what I understand, the complete copy of The Matrix surfaced in 1985. And that's the version that had the Avalon Ballroom on it. But the first batch of The Matrix stuff that surfaced was a 13-song compilation. And that was in 1973. So I'm not sure. Wow. So so as early as 1973, The Matrix tapes were... Uh, in in some sort of circulation or or out there to some portion of the community. That's right. The original 13-song batch that surfaced in 1973, it must have been bootlegged very early on. Um, I'm sure it was going around in tape trading circles a bit before my time, and I don't know much about it, but it wasn't until 1985 that a so-called complete copy of the, the tapes did surface, and it also included Booty Love from the Avalon Ballroom tapes. Now, they're another interesting one because it's quite possible that they were recorded a week or so before The Matrix, I think. And Who Do You Love was included in that complete copy in 1985, but that is indeed from the Avalon Ballroom. So let's speculate a little bit. And this is something you and I talked about in personal messages, but something that I, I sort of questioned because you were ingrained in this community and the tape trading community. By the time I got into tape trading, I think I've talked about this a little bit on the podcast. It was mostly torrents, whatever I could. This was even before stuff was getting put on YouTube, I think. But it was like, it was you could still get CDs, I think, from uh, from Doors dot com, which would you know was the Doors Collectors Magazine, because they hadn't shut down quite yet. But at the same time, a lot of stuff you could torrent, which uh, if you don't understand torrenting or or look that up, I, I don't know what people. Because I, I know I have some listeners that are like, you know, just in college. And I know I have some listeners who know immensely more about the doors and have been in the community, probably watched them live, you know. So I don't really know who to talk to here. But it, but basically, me and you talked, and it was almost, and my thought was possibly that it could be like, why I was thinking through this, why would somebody put the Avalon ballroom tape, you know, tracks in with the Matrix tapes? And I thought maybe it could have been like a taper's signature because some people would put that in tapes. Uh, what, what do you think? Why would, why would, I mean, are they close enough together that that's just such a weird thing is just to be like, hey, maybe they need to fill out room. I don't know. What do you think, Travis? I can only speculate. Um, and also, I don't know where or who the this first batch and the second batch of tapes um, originated from. I would I would speculate that you could be right that it could be someone, you know, adding a mark on there. It could also be someone adding a bonus track. Like sometimes tracks have surfaced like that as filler material at the end. And but the fact that it was placed in the middle of a set rather than like tacked on at the end makes me think that it could have been a very subtle suggestion that someone wanted to say, "Hey, these exist." But also, I believe they were taped. I believe the three Avalon songs were taped from the radio, from a radio broadcast, and the complete masters. I wish I knew more about them. I know some people have that information, but there are a whole handful of sets from the Avalon Ballroom, allegedly, and three songs were broadcast, and that's how we have them. So maybe someone snuck 
one into the Matrix set as a teaser? I don't know. We can only speculate as to the mind of a collector, and they can be very strange people. Sometimes it can be very innocent as well. Back in the day, I had a tape sent to me from a guy in Melbourne, and it was just I would send him two blank tapes, and he would send me one of them back with music on it. And I thought, okay, the concert was over, but it was still in the machine. And then this version of Light My Fire comes on, and it's that family dog version. And I emailed him, and I'm like, hey, there's this weird version of Light My Fire. The sound quality is like this. It sounds kind of bizarre. What's going on? And he said, oh, I threw that on there. That's, you know, from the family dog. There's only one song, but I threw it on there just to fill the time because there was a lot of dead space at the end of that tape, and I thought you would like it. Sometimes people just do shit like that. And another thing, Long Beach Auditorium was a show... You may be familiar with it, February 70. Quite a long set, incomplete recording, doesn't circulate. And there was a second recording that was better quality. I mean, some people think it was better. For me, it's distorted, but it's very dry and taped close to the stage. And it was was always referred to as the second source or the alternate source. But actually, the song The Spy from the alternate source, which was rare and uncirculated for years, and everyone on the forum wanted a copy of the alternative source, Uh, the spy from that source was bootlegged, was an additional song on a bootleg in, like, the 80s. So so in reality, the alternative source was actually the, the original first source, right? But when the other source came out, that didn't have lots of cuts in it. Because I don't know if you're familiar with it, but that alternative source was chopped up and the batteries on the recorder were running low. It was really bad. Stop and start, stop and start. Um, It went underground again, and and it became rare. And the only people that had it were older collectors who were like, why should I give you my tapes? And it wasn't like it was ever kept secret, but it became a secret. And then eventually it circulated. And I still think that the the longer source that was taped further away is better quality because, firstly, it's not all cut up and it's not distorted. It's more in the auditorium, but sounds better to me. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, speaking of bootleg versions in the Avalon Ballroom, there was a version, I think the 94 Matrix tapes is one that I remember. It was like a box set, sort of an elongated box set, almost like that 97 Doors box set, but an unofficial, of course. It was by... Kiss the Stone, which is something I remember Robbie, I think, talking about litigation in one of the Doors Collectors magazines, like sending some uh, some letters and stuff their way. But it was, was it a picture from maybe the Isle of Wight Festival of Jim? It was for a, a yellow looking Jim with, you know, with a beard and the, looks almost like that jacket from the Isle of Wight Festival. But it said the complete Matrix yeah. tapes. And I, I think for all intents and purposes, of course, it wasn't the complete Matrix tapes, but it had the first and the second show and the third show from the seventh had some from the tenth. But we, that's not the complete Matrix tapes, of course. But it it had, let's see, it had thirty six tracks. I never had that set. It's a very famous set, and I think someone may have dubbed some CDs for me of that set. As far as I know, it's as complete as it was ever going to get at that stage. It was missing the two instrumentals that had been released on the complete tapes now, but it had everything else, I believe. As far as it being edited, if the Between Song banter was removed, I can't remember. I actually have always found the Matrix tapes a little harsh on the ear. 
It's a very direct sounding band and listening to it in the car sometimes with that hard split of the vocal on the right and the band on the left, it's it's something I struggle to listen to for long periods of time because it's just such a hard driving mid-range sound. But of course, that's how the band sounded at the time, that they had a thinner sound until Vince Trainer came on board and built proper speakers for the piano bass and the columns, of course, uh, their sound was much smaller and much more MIDI. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, going back to that too, one thing I remember as well was there was a 2009 bootleg. I think it was like by Godfather Records or something. And it was called the original tapes, the original Matrix tapes. But it didn't have the 10th show. It just had all the 7th. And then it had the three Avalon Ballroom tracks tacked on. And then at the end of that, it had the family dog light my fire. I don't know why. I almost It almost seems like that was a response. And we can get into this too. It was almost like that was a response to the 2008 Doors release saying, hey, here's the tapes and here's everything. And then somebody comes out and like, well, here's all of the 67 show at least. And we're going to sort of boot like this and release it. But almost like a response like that's not the, not the complete show. And, and that's one thing I want to transition to here to talk about the weird 2008 release. So we get this 2008 release that was, I think even Bruce Botnick mentioned in the notes, the liner notes that, Hey, I mastered these from the, the Abrams originals, you know? And then shortly after that, and you can probably attest to this, I think Abrams comes out on the forums on like the Steve Hoffman forum and says, yeah, no, here's a picture of the original box. I've still got these. These aren't them basically. Yeah, that's what happened. So back then, he, Abram, released some pictures that were really hard to look at because the flash made a lot of glare on the shiny box or whatever. But he also released like a sampler of tracks directly from the tapes, which sounded amazing. And like, I mean, straight off, not mixed, just left, right, band and vocal. And that's out there on YouTube. If you look up YouTube, The Other Voices, there's a channel called The Other Voices. He has uploaded the sampler there. I'm sure some people have got it, you know, on their hard drive as well. I know I do. And you can compare the original sound directly from the tapes to the modern release. Now, thankfully, they haven't used, I don't think they've used any noise reduction. You can hear the original tape is on the Matrix vinyl, which I think is good because, you know, when you get into noise reduction, you know, invariably you you begin to bite into the program content. So you don't want to use too much of that stuff. And I think it's good that they left the tape hiss in. Yeah, I, I agree with that too. And one of the things I was, I was talking about too, I found uh, the post, or at least part of the post, this was... On Steve Hoffman? Yes. Well, this is technically from the a quote of the Steve Hoffman post. I couldn't find it directly, but they put it on the, on actually it's on the Wikipedia page of all things. So this is what he said. And do you know what, I mean, he, he talks about what he used here, but do you remember what he used and everything? Or do you, would you want me to just read this? I think you should read it because I've got a version of it in my memory. That's, uh, from what I recall on the seventh, he hung a single mic over the band from the roof and a direct feed of Morrison's vocal. And when he got to the 10th, he had individually mic'd the group, possibly using EV664 or 676 cardioid microphones. I'm not sure. Hmm. Man, what a memory. What a memory. See, you said you forget stuff. Sharp as a tack over here. I'll, I'll read this. Uh, this is directly from 
Peter Abrams post on November 22nd, 2008. He posted this on, on one of the sites. I used an Akai. How do you say that? A-K-I-A-I? In Australia, I would say Akai. 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 You, 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 you could say Akai. Akai. I don't know. Australians definitely say Akai. I've got a southern <laughs> draw, so I, <laughs> I definitely. I used an Akai recorder, and he has in parentheses tubes, four Calrad mics on the stage and a Calrad mic mixer on the instrumental channel. On the vocal channel, a night mixer with three Electro Voice 676 and Shure mics. The Calrad mics that I used on the instrumental track were model DM-21. And he also says the original master quarter-inch track stereo tapes recorded at 7.5 IPS on Abrams' Akai reel-to-reel vacuum tube tape recorder. Okay, for for a dollard like me, what what does recording something at 7.5 IPS mean? I mean, yeah, the faster the speed, uh, the more, how do I explain this? Is it basically, so, so I know that like on VHS tapes, you could basically back in the day, you could, I guess, record, you could make it record faster and you could get more on a tape, but the quality would be lower. Is that sort of the same principle or no? It's exactly the same principle. And I guess the, you know, if you were to say it in a sentence, you would say the faster the speed, the better the quality, the lower the speed, the less of the quality. But the reason being is, as the information comes in live, if you've got a tape speed that's running quick, then that information gets spread over a longer period of tape, which I guess allows for more detail to be taken down. The modern equivalent would be a sample rate. You know, if you imagine a sound wave and you've got however many samples a second, if it's an MP3 quality and it's 320 kilobytes per second, you're going to get a lot more value if you're taking far more samples at 24.96. So I guess it's sort of like that. You've got more, informa- more of the information spread over more of the physical medium. So you're using more medium. You're getting less overall content, but, and it's, but it's going to be a better quality, basically. Is that- yeah, totally. So you've got to have more tape on hand, I guess. Yes. So 7.5 IPS. Is that good? Is that bad? Is that in between? I think as far as consumer-grade machines go, that's about as fast as they go, right? I mean, the professional machines went up to 15 and later 30 inches per second. But, like, for example, Vince Trainer recorded... I think Vince Trainer recorded Bakersfield at three and three quarters, and he recorded Seattle and Vancouver at a lower speed again. Now, just the slowest. Now, I can only talk about consumer-grade reel-to-reels because I have three semi-pro or consumer-grade reel-to-reels. One and seven-eighths of an inch is the slowest speed. Three and three-quarters is the middle speed. And seven and a half inches is the fastest speed. But I know that... Yeah. But I know that when the doors taped... And probably when any professional recording was done in the late 60s, it was done at 15 inches a second. Yeah. So one thing I want to do real quick, and I don't know how this will come through on your end, but I did want to play, because I think the the actual Doors release of The Matrix is still on, the, the old one is still on Spotify. Oh, yeah. So I wanted to see, because I have the, the teaser up on the other voices that we talked about. So I'm going to listen to a little bit of Crawling King Snake and then listen to the, the sampler. 
Oh, yeah. Tell me if you can hear it okay. Almost like it's a, coming through bad, but that's got to be the 2008 sound, right? It is. It's, you it, can hear the reverb in it. A ton of reverb, man. God. Somebody take Jim's harmonica away, man. But what oh. I can tell you, Brad, we, can we talk over the music? Is that a yeah, thing? Yeah, we, we can talk over the music. What I can tell you is... The, the version with the reverb added to it comes from the 1985 complete version. Okay. And the 1973 version will be drier. Okay, now we're going to listen to this. This is on the Other Voices channel. Man, damn, that sounds great. But listen to the drums. So it's like It's like right in front of them. I, I don't hear the harmonica a lot, though. Maybe it's... Oh. <laughs> yeah, wait for it. <laughs> man, that is, that, is, that is really night and day, though, man. Uh, I mean, it, it is just such a different sound. And the weirdest thing, and, and another weird thing is, so we get the 2008 release. The Doors believe, or they say that they believe, that they have the master tapes and they release them. Peter Abrams does this. We talked about that, mentioned that. So what, what how how did it get confused? Did it get confused? Uh, I guess a lot of that speculation, too. Let's just talk about openly, because... Uh, you know, not not being in the same circles you are, and, and having consumed some of the forum stuff, I imagine a lot of stuff was said on like Lizard Lounge, on Steve Hoffman stuff like that. I can begin with something that I remember, and when I say I remember, I say I'm fairly confident is true, and that is that Abram went on record a long time ago saying that he made copies for the doors i'm not sure when so don't quote me it could have been it could have been back in the day like it could have been back in the 60s yeah it could have been back then he made copies and gave them to the doors and uh i remember this because he specifically said he made a copy with the automatic gain function turned on on the other on the record machine now automatic gain control is just another word for compression so, uh, without going back and comparing the 13-song leak from 73 to the uh, songs from 1985 uh, and, you know, trying to decode the thoughts of a bootlegger and what reverb was added and where, um, we know that Abram made copies for the doors and they were compressed because there was an automatic gain control on the recorder that he dubbed to. Okay. Uh, fast forward to 2008. And what tapes did the Doors use for the 2008 Matrix release? What does get a little murky? I recall conversations on the Lizard Lounge, on the Steve Hoffman forum, 
And at that stage, I hadn't yet joined the Freedom Man Forum because I had a little... There was a couple of years where I had like a little rum springer from the Doors scene. And, and I wasn't in... I sort of wasn't in the, the in crowd for a little while. And I came back eventually, I think in about 2009, 2008, 2009. But various stories did circulate about the source of the 2008 release. One story, which I believe was posted on a forum, was that Paul Rothschild himself attended the Matrix shows and made his own recording. And those are the tapes that we used for the release. Which, um, which personally to me sounds, the fa- him recording every night seems very, after of an untried group, you know, you've got the, maybe he, and I'm sure he saw a lot in the doors, you know, don't get me wrong on that. But before the album even, you know, sort of, I mean, I'm sure it's making a climb at this time, but he basically the thought that he's going to bring a, re, you know, his own player in and record every single night seems a, a little far-fetched to me. Yeah, me too. And I'm sure that someone at the time had a fair argument for like what else Rothschild might've been doing in March of 1967. Uh, I don't know where he was, what, but he might have been working on something else. Yeah, that comment drew the criticism of a lot of people. And someone even said that the song Crawling King Snake in particular was sourced from an MP3 and that they used bootlegs for the majority of it. Now, I don't know if that's true. Like, that seems, considering the history the Doors have with like altering a recording or get, you know, advertising copy that's incorrect or liner notes that have errors in them. Nothing really surprises me, but I think even for the doors issuing an MP3 is probably not going to happen. But someone did say that on one of the forums, someone definitely suggested that crawling King snake was sourced from an MP3 by the sounds of it. I think it was, Definitely the 1985 bootleg source with added reverb because there is definitely an added reverb element to the 2008 release that is also present on that bootleg source. But yeah, so in summary, Abram did make copies for the doors that were compressed. Maybe, maybe intentionally? Good question. We could only speculate that he, that whether he did it intentionally or not, but certainly. Once it's on there, you can't take it off. Yeah, and, and say if they want to use it later on, you can make a post. Well, I'm sure at the time he didn't think this, but either way, you can disseminate them information like pretty soon after that. Like, yeah, I've got the best quality versions they refuse to buy or, or whatnot, you know, or, or whatever his line of reasoning is, which, I mean, if you, if you want to make that supposition, that is something he really did. But at the same time, yeah. you know, did he do it on purpose? Is it, you know, is it a... A issue with equipment and, and I know we've had some advancements, in, you know, some advancements, many advancements in quality, uh, cleanup and, and audio and stuff like that and, and transit, you know, all that kind of stuff. I'm sure you're more versed in all that than I am, but things have definitely got better on that side. But either way, we know that he gave them an inferior copy of what he had, basically. Correct. And I'm not sure if it was on cassette or open reel, but uh my my feeling is that I want to say it was a cassette, but I don't actually know or remember. You know, one thing I can add is, on an unrelated note, years and years later, when the Stockholm shows began to circulate as a master clone, 
there was this notion that someone had got a copy of the master and digitized that, so it was a clone of the master tape. But it circulated with a lot of digital noise reduction on it, which totally ruined the dynamics of, say, a song like The End, where it comes down real quiet and all you can hear is the piano bass and the cymbals sort of clinking away. And and at that point, a lot of quantization noise pops up and and that's the result of an overuse of a very early version of digital noise reduction, which is totally unnecessary on those tapes. And they were also compressed to hell as well. So, yeah, modern technology can do good things, but in the wrong hands... Uh, it can ruin something. And, of course, like, it devalued the whole notion of a master clone because what's the point of having a master or a digital copy of a master if you're going to whack a bunch of uh, processing on top of it? It becomes unusable because it's not the original article, much like Abram making the uh, compressed copy from the doors. And maybe we can speculate, as you say, maybe you're right that he did that deliberately just so they couldn't take advantage of him and release those tapes. So someone's probably got a clean transfer of that sitting on a drive somewhere, but I don't know if the uh, noise reduction and compression was added to Stockholm by the collector who started to trade it and leak it or by the person that that collector got it from. I don't know that information. I've never sought that information out, much like the Matrix tapes the Stockholm tapes were some of the most heavily bootlegged tapes and thankfully much like the Matrix tapes they're amazing performances and the quality is really good so you know we're thankful they were bootlegged and there's no surprise just to rewind for a second that I didn't know this but when you mentioned that the, the doors were talking about litigating against the Kiss the Stone Matrix tapes box set I'm not surprised because they produced a set full of amazing content, really good sound, and the artwork was phenomenal. No Doors artwork has ever matched a bootleg like that. I mean, I think you mentioned the photograph on the cover. I want to say that it was from Chicago 69 or Minneapolis 69. It was definitely from that first tour, that first post-Miami tour. Look at the shirt. I do believe that that's from the Complete Matrix Club tapes. I do believe that's from one of the first tours after Miami, yeah. Before the Aquarius Theater, they played, yes, testing my memory, Chicago, Minneapolis. Oh, man. Damn. Damn, I think you were right. Let me see. Dude, yeah. I, th- I think that's the same shirt, man. I think you're right. Let's see. So that's Chicago. I think it's Chicago. Yeah. Damn, I think, damn, I think you're 100% right on that, dude. What a what a call. What a call. And now, just to segue again, we're going to talk about sound quality. Now, if you've got a, a good quality recording like a Matrix or, for example, an 8-track recording like anything that the Doors have put out, someone who mixes that recording for release is always going to make it sound what they think is the best. And Bruce Botnick came under a lot of criticism from a lot of purist fans for adding digital reverb to the absolutely live releases. And some collectors have got uh, rough mixes or like um, preview mixes of those absolutely live shows that are very dry without reverb on them, and they prefer those mixes. 
So the Matrix is another interesting one. In the 80s, there was reverb added to the Matrix bootleg. The, the, the recording quality is still the same. It may be a couple of generations removed, but there's some reverb added. But then when the record, stay, record Store Day issues came out, fans complained that Bruce Botnick did a mix that they didn't like. You know, and but ultimately the recordings are still phenomenal quality, but someone didn't like the way he blended the, the band track and the vocal track. And so that spread, that stereo spread was different on the debut album 50th anniversary issue and the other issue, which I think was called Let's Feed Ice Cream to the Rats. And now we have the official Live at the Matrix, the original masters, and the mix again is different. And if you notice, the Ice Cream to the Rats snippet of the end, I think is mixed very differently to the rest of the set. I think it's almost untouched. Like, yeah, the vocal is still center, center right, but it just seems more to the original unmixed recording than everything else recorded on the 7th, which I found interesting, actually. It could have been a creative decision to separate the two sonically just a little bit because once we get to March 10, as you said before, Abram had the whole band close mic'd with those Calrad and EV676 mics. Yeah, and I think that is also like, there's lines and doors shows that sort of quantify that, like they become like a staple of the show. Like that that line is like linked directly with the, if somebody mentioned that, like I, I would even know that, hey, that's the Matrix tapes. And it's sort of ingrained in you. You know, if you're like, hey, what about dead cats, dead rats? Oh, that's uh, Detroit. You know, there's things that are just so uniquely, uh, uniquely Doors show related, you know. And and I think that that was done purposefully to, hey, this is the line and sort of make sure it's untouched, like out in front, out in center. Maybe, maybe turned up a little bit. Maybe it might have been set a little off mic. I don't know. You know how Jim sometimes uh, says things, but I think, I think it was great. And me and you, and I don't know if you've heard anything else. So we both heard the, the mix, I guess the album version, the LP version. And I don't know if you've heard the CD version or anything else since, but the album version definitely didn't have the, the banter in between. And I mean, I guess that's the nature of an LP itself, but I mean, some of the early bootleg LPs had it, but I don't know what, have you heard any other versions beside the album version that we heard? Uh, no, but a good friend of mine, the very same day that it streamed, my friend received in the mail his copy, LP, CD, and uh, he listened to it almost immediately and sent me some notes, and he said th- that the CD is edited the same way as the LP, and that the mastering, I poor, th- you could quote me or you might not quote me, I'm not sure, I think he said the mastering was the same. I've got, a, I've got a message from him here, but he, he definitely said that the editing was the same on the CD as the LP. Unfortunately, you would have thought that they might have left them in on the CD. I know, right? Because it also seems like was the album, I guess there's had to be cuts made. Like Bags Grooves is like on, its, on, an, on a seven inch by itself. So where does that sort of fall in? You know, I don't know. On the CD, I think on the CD release, Bags Groove is the first track. Is it? Okay. But, but on the LP, it's a bonus It's a bonus 7-inch. So, and I think this is the Doors being the Doors again. And and I don't I don't want to speak ill uh, or or s- say anything like, hey, this is, this is a bad choice. 
And I, and I think this is something I've been brewing on and something I almost thought about having a whole podcast about, but it's almost detrimental that, and this is going to come, I, I maybe should even not even say this, but I'm going to say it. It's almost, it's almost detrimental that all the doors are still alive while this stuff is being released. Now, now that, that sounds like, oh man, that's terrible. That's not what I'm talking about. Like it's because everybody in releases, their egos play a little part in it. And I know some people don't want it. And that's sort of the reason that the original matrix tapes got cut out. If you look at something as streamlined as like the Jimi Hendrix catalog, the way that dagger records handles his stuff after Jimmy died, nobody else had a say in what was released. They let Eddie Kramer just go in there and be like, Hey man, Here's all the stuff. Look through all these tapes. Here's a complete concert. Just release it untouched, whatever. And there's been some things like the only show I think that I've, I've noticed like heavy editing in was the Woodstock show. And I think cause it's Woodstock, I don't know, but it's almost like it was sort of a benefit that nope. Hendrix wasn't around to say, Hey, I don't like the way that I did this or, or I hit this note. And they've released things as is they've released tons of bootlegs, like cleaned them up with Eddie Kramer cleaning them up. And I've and I've rarely heard anybody complain about Eddie Kramer's mixing work as far as what he does to the door to the uh, Jimi Hendrix catalog. In fact, you know, looking at the doors, a lot of stuff sat in vaults, languished in vaults because, hey, we don't need the we don't need all the versions of all these songs on the Matrix because I don't know if they under I'm not going to say they don't understand their fans, but like sometimes it's hard to like think, hey, man, people just want to hear everything, you know. And it's something the Beatles are coming around to, and I think partially because it's really just Paul and Ringo left in their in their eighties. But man, the Beatles have just started started saying, "Hey, we're just gonna that Sergeant Pepper like fiftieth was such an amazing release they did. Just hey, let's just put everything out there we have. And I know the Doors don't have all that, but it's almost like over the years the Doors sort of were reluctant to release some stuff because they thought it might cast bad light on their playing or or whatnot. I'm not really sure or cast bad light on the band. But I almost think that it, that sort of ingratiates you with people. Like it's it's good to hear a bad night every now and then, or hear a bad note in a song. You know, that's what we want to hear. We want to hear it as it was performed. You know, there's a conversation that a friend of mine relayed to me from Paris in 2001, and he mentioned something about New Orleans. Are you going to buy the tape? Are the Doors going to release that show? And Sugarman's response was, "The Doors never flooded the market." Okay. Now, you can decode that, I guess. But back in those days, the doors did not flood the market. Until the bright midnight releases started coming out in 2000, I think. 99, 2000, maybe 2001. They were supposed to release one every six months. It took a bit longer than that, but they did release all of the absolutely live shows. They released some terrible shows too. They don't all show the doors in a good light. In fact, they're all a bit irky in some way but the boston shows in particular even though they're like really fun to listen to because a doors train wreck is somehow as interesting as a really solid show or as vince trainer said even a show that was so bad it was good had magic to it they still release that stuff yet we hear the rumor that manzarek didn't want bakersfield released because he didn't think the quality was up to snuff Now, are they referring to the quality of the recording or are they referring to the quality of Ray's playing? Because the band was kind of sloppy, but they were like kind of energetic and doing something kind of good. And you guys talked about Bakersfield, you and Michael Papasino. 
And my view on that concert is not as good as, it's not as positive as Michael's. I think Morrison actually gave a terrible performance with moments of brilliance, which is a standard Doors thing. Moments of brilliance and moments of, you know, less than brilliant and sometimes embarrassment. I mean, don't forget, there's a rumor about another Doors tape that has been suppressed because it doesn't show Morrison in a good light. Now, what are the details? Don't know. One can only assume from reading the books about Morrison's behavior, not only through his whole career, but in the early days especially, he probably said something incredibly offensive that would be cancelable nowadays. And that may have been just as and then that may have been just as wise to suppress that tape in the mid two thousands when it first surfaced. So yeah, I mean I don't think the doors are beyond censorship and they're also not beyond releasing trash. <laughs> yeah. And and I, and I, again, I want to say that my comments are not like, Hey, I, w- I wish every door was dead. Like, I, I don't know, I, I, but I guess my, my more, more of what I was saying was that the comparison was that sometimes when you don't have, when you have too many cooks in the kitchen and you have too many people, you know, vetoing this or vetoing that, you're going to get less material. And I know they have less material than Hendrix. I know they're not as popular as Hendrix. I understand all that. And I know they're not putting their names on like soccer jerseys or, you know, a lot of Hendrix name is sort of peddled a lot of the ways that I don't, I don't think he would necessarily agree with. So there's also that aspect and I respect the doors for not selling out in that, that aspect in a, in a lot of ways. But overall, I guess my sentiment was just that, you know, sometimes it's okay as time goes on to, to stay relevant to, release some of the stuff. I mean, hell, my first experience listening to Hendrix was like a Mountain Dew commercial. That was the first, and then I dug into it, you know, and maybe that's a sellout, you know, but if it brought one more fan into the fold, like I'm a, I'm a huge Hendrix fan. I don't talk about it as much as I do the doors because there's just something special about the doors, but I don't think there's anything unequally special about Hendrix, if not more special than, you know, Hendrix's case. Cause he was like sort of one man show, no matter what he did, uh, gypsy with his band, gypsy sons and rainbows or with the experience, you know, but all that aside, I guess getting back on track before we before we leave, I also wanted to talk about. So we we mentioned that possibly Paul Rothschild had recorded these. You know that was one of the rumors. What was some more of the the damage control they did to be like, oh, this is some other like why more excuses I guess of why the two thousand eight release or rumors of why the two thousand eight release wasn't the one they thought it was. Uh, that's a good question. I can't really remember much else from back in the day. I know that more recently the claim was that uh, that the Doors had third-generation tapes in their archive that they believed to be the masters at the time and they used those unwittingly, which just sounds like a far more innocent explanation than, um, say, the truth of the matter or, or the previous lie uh, that Rothschild might have taped his own version of those shows. So, so it's either hey, Paul could have could have recorded these, or they thought they had the masters, but they didn't. But, but it, you would almost think that Peter Abrams, I don't know, you'd you'd almost think they would be quite aware that he had the original masters. I think they would. They they were absolutely aware. Now it was. They were aware that Abrams owned the Masters. Uh, it was after this that they reached a deal with him and they purchased the Masters, I want to say, in about 2012 because there was a long thread on the Freedom Man forum 
it, the, the title of the thread was the upcoming Matrix release, and that was in 2012. And that thread was so many pages, I don't think I've even read it all. And it went on for years. And so the Matrix release finally happened in September. What is it? September? In September of 2023. You know, so the thread was alive for over 10 years. So they must have bought the tapes around that time. Now, I can't recall. You might want to ask Tan what he remembers, unless we can get another bit of insight here. I'm not sure if there was a lawsuit from Abram or if he threatened one or what, but I know that it was not long after the 2008 release that they actually bought the tapes. Abram definitely made a fuss about it because, as you said earlier, he posted the photos of the box and that sampler of content directly from the tapes to show how good the quality was compared to what they, the Doors had released in 2008. Fast forwarding before this release, I find that interesting too. I don't know if you had friends in, in, in middle school or, or even elementary school, they would like say some outlandish claim like, oh yeah, there's going to be like a, a big Marvel movie or something released and it would be like, 10 years later and it'd be released and be like, and you'd be like, man, I wonder if they were like being serious or if they just like lucked into this, like almost <laughs> dude, are, are these forums did in 2012, did they know this new release was coming or did they just sort of luck into this? You know, I think there's a little bit of that, but I mean, even you have the, and I got the record store releases, the record store day releases and the quality is better. I do. The mix is, is different, but I don't think it's too different than what we got. And of course, I'm not an audiophile as much as yourself or probably some of the other communities. I mean, some, the, the quality still sounds great on the LP releases. Listen to them through my old you know, 60s turntable. So maybe I need to upgrade that. But I think that the, the Record Store Day release is really cool. I think it was a unique experience. At the time, I did think it was weird that they're releasing these tapes. And I, it almost takes the luster out of the box set release. You know, it's almost cooler if you just release it all at once. And, and maybe that's a personal opinion, but... You know, sort of like they did with Paris Blues. One day, just Paris Blues was just like a record store day release, and it was it was awesome. You know, I love Paris Blues. I think that was a cool track, even though it. it I don't think anything could have lived, lived up to the legend. But you know, all that being said, this new release it is definitely moving the right direction. I hate that they cut out the banter still, and maybe there's a way. Maybe somebody will go out there and do this to take some of those old bootlegs and at least cut the banner out and put them into the you know, do some uh, audio editing. Maybe I'll take that upon myself as if I don't have enough, you know, stuff in my, in my day to do this. I got to say, Brad, I really enjoyed the record store day and uh, debut album mix of the matrix stuff. A lot of people complained. I was one of those who defended it saying that, um, you know, you have to combine those two tracks somehow because it's kind of bizarre listening i mean it's like those old beatles mixes why they put the band on one side and then the you know and they just mixed it so hard like that and i think i think botnik was right to blend them together i think they sound great and i think the new mix sounds great too but what i wanted to ask you as well is do you think that um robbie krieger selling his uh publishing rights to primary wave has anything to do with this massive matrix box set because they have just released the whole package here. 100%. I, I do not. And maybe, I don't, I don't know what, when, when did the deal happen? Was this already with the, were the wheels already in motion? I know production is probably 
six months out from where, you know, it almost seems like production had to be happening before this. You know, I don't know though. Really? I, I, well, I, I, I don't know what the, I'm, so I'm in contact with people who do like production on more other physical goods, like, uh, you know, more toy related stuff. And some of the, some of the, I guess things on that, like how, how far out you have to have production samples and CDs are probably quite different, but I'd almost want to bet that primary wave media buying their shares is, is more of a, Hey, this is some of the stuff that we might, that Robbie might be more reluctant to buy to, to put out there. But primary wave media has more of a, they have more meat on, they have more reason because it's almost like, you know, locking up a, a baseball player or something for a long-term contract. You, you pay, pay for the contract, hoping that they'll produce in the long run. I doubt they would have paid as much as they did to buy out Robbie and, uh, and raise wife's, you know, side of things if they didn't see some value in it, you know, and we've heard for years. Yeah. And I think that there's been a rumor that's, you know, and I even believe it myself or did believe it that, a, that the vaults dry and, and that there's not a lot left and talking to some people lately, there may be some new stuff being found. I don't know how much, I can't really say a lot about that. Uh, but there, there may be more meat on the bone coming up. Who knows? I don't know. I think there's always a bit more meat on the bone. I mean, they came out with an incredibly boring selection of studio outtakes for the 40th anniversary reissue of their albums. And then for the 50th anniversaries, they came out with some more interesting stuff. I mean, granted... The Strange Days didn't get a traditional 50th release. The debut album had bonus tracks from The Matrix, as we discussed. Waiting for the Sun had the Rough Mix collection, which I thought was very interesting. And, of course, a very small selection from the Copenhagen tape, which is another item they could release in its entirety if they were so inclined. But then you get to the Soft Parade, and they they finally released The Complete Rock is Dead, and those yeah. tragic uh, Ray Manzarek vocal blues, which are also really interesting because they mark a departure in recording style. You notice they spread the drums over four tracks, and previously the drums were always mixed to one track. And it was after that when they get into Morrison Hotel, because remember, the Manzarek uh, blues stuff with that early version of Roadhouse Blues, now in classic Doors uh, style, the liner notes of the Soft Parade 50th gave two different dates for that recording, and there were typos all through it. It's almost like no one proofread it. You know, so when you say the production is six months out, I think, what were they doing in that time? What were they doing in that six months that no one proofread and made sure the dates were the same between the notes and the dates listed on the back? I mean, it's horrifying. But they did release all that great material, and then we get to Morrison Hotel. And they give us exactly what we wanted. I mean, yeah, they give us a lot more Roadhouse Blues, which is nauseating. But we'd be disappointed if we didn't get it. And they also gave us a whole string of Queen of the Highways from the Soft Parade sessions and from the Morrison Hotel sessions. You know, they don't necessarily tell you that the November 68 Queen of the Highways were actually Soft Parade sessions. They could have released those with the Soft Parade if they were being true to form. But they didn't. They just went with the song and its evolution, which, you know, whatever, that's fine. They still released it. And then you get to L.A. Woman and you really become a fly on the wall. So I think they've always got stuff left over. And 
there are tape boxes published on Doors AI. So you know they've at least got some stuff, even if it's just working towards the master take of Ship of Fools or 14 different takes of Tell All the People. They've got heaps of shit. There's so much more stuff out there. Maybe none of it's interesting. Maybe most of it doesn't have a vocal, but they've always got something. They've probably got more audience recordings that were turned in over the years. They've definitely got one from Chicago, 1970, that is not circulating, that's meant to be bad quality, but it's got an interesting set list. They play Tell All the People and Gloria, I think, which is another rarity as far as, you know, the Doors career goes. They've got some stuff. They've got the Stockholm tapes. They've got the complete Copenhagen. What else do they have? They've got Highway, which I think is going to come out, obviously, the film. We know that the Morrison Estate... Yeah, the Morrison Estate has... I went with Paris Blues. They had part of the uh, Norman Mailer. Yeah, they had had just a portion of that. And I don't know what the... And I think that was more on the Morrison Estate hanging up on, I don't know, some... I don't I really don't know. From what I've heard it was it was more on the Morrison estate than the doors themselves. Oh yeah, we know they have look, we can only speculate on that, but it seems obvious that as you say, they needed a bunch of tracks to fill in the rest of the disc for Paris Blues. So they took two blues songs that were played at the Cinematech sixteen Norman Mellor Benefit and they sound really good. Now the reason they didn't include the other blues songs from that night I don't know. I mean, it could be because they didn't want to pay the publishing rights for those songs because it's like Heartbreak Hotel, which is probably not cheap. But also it could just be uh, because those versions of those songs are not very good. You know, whereas you got Me and the Devil Blues and um, I Will Never Be Untrue, they're really good performances. But the poetry definitely would come under the Morrison Corsons, so they couldn't have released that. Yeah, and and here we are. We, I mean, truly, we are just speculating here, uh, and and maybe to speculate further, and maybe end on this note. I'm, I'm, we may have a little follow up after this. We're you know every year we have a big, I guess, November release coinciding with Black Friday. You know the the biggest one of the biggest record store days. They have the one big record store day in April. They have one big one in November, and since then, I know they've had. I think they have four or five record days, record store days a year, depending, maybe six if they're crazy. So we have to think that coming up in November, they're going to have another release of something. Coming off the heels of the Matrix shows, do they have another, do they have a, something related to the Matrix releasing, like as far as a record store day record, like maybe pull it all, pull something together and make it like, hey, here's another sort of ad looking cover or, or do they come, they go a different way? What do you, what do you think is in the can that they're preparing to release in November or what would you see as a record store day release in, in November? Brad, I have no idea. I would love to think that they can bookend the matrix with the new Orleans tape, but I also, I also doubt they've come to a deal on that one yet, you know? And also I think part of me would be sad if they released it officially. I almost I almost want that tape to remain underground forever, you know? Like, I don't want the doors to get their hands on it. I almost want it to be something the collectors find. I know that sounds horrible, but I'd rather a bunch of collectors found it and it got circulated amongst a group of fans than have the doors get their hands on it and they squeeze out a track or two here and there like they did with Copenhagen. Yeah, and I can't speak much on this. I, I do know that they 
they do have a track record or, or I don't know how to word this without saying it. I would just say that I do know that sometimes they do get a hold of things and they hold on them onto them for 10 plus years. And, uh, and, and that's, I won't say anything more than that, but. but well, we, we, we waited 10 years for the matrix. So, I mean, of course with the matrix, but I mean, even, uh, I guess the jam pool, uh, management style, he has done this with other artists. So that's all I'll say. Nothing more. Uh, whoever, whoever knows, knows. So I would like to anyway. think there's more meat on the bone there. <laughs> I would yeah, like to believe yeah, this made on the Man, truthfully, I would love to see. I could see them doing like a keep staying with the '67 theme. Maybe having like some of the Avalon Ballroom stuff. Maybe having a, a track from like the wasn't there one wasn't light my fire? Is that the only one from the Family Dog Show in Denver? Yeah, look the the Family Dog stuff. I'm not uh, up on that. I don't know the origin of that recording. Um, or if there's more, I mean, I think the story was discussed years ago, but I forget it now. There's no way they could release the Avalon tracks though, because they were taped off a radio broadcast and the master tapes are known and the owner is known. And, uh, I don't know what this, the situation is there, but I imagine if they wanted to release those, they'd need to make a deal for those tapes. Okay. And there's a lot, and I believe there's a lot more than three songs. You know, I think it's more like multiple sets of music. Yeah, and, and maybe, and maybe they they do expand upon the Matrix some and put some of that. I really don't know, but and and maybe since this is their big release, maybe they throw a comp- compilation together like they do sometimes, and that nobody really wants, or you know, who knows? But that is the doors for you. Ah, now there is meant to be an American prayer. There, there should be an American Prayer 50th. Maybe don't include this in the podcast because I don't know how public this information is. But I was told ages ago that they were going to do a 50th anniversary of American Prayer. But that, you know, that came out. What year did that come out? Was it 78? 77 or 78, yeah. I, I talked about it in, my, in, the, in the Randall Johnson podcast because he didn't even rem- It's 78, I'm pretty sure. Cause it, cause he was in college at the time and he, and he completely forgot, which that's not against him. I mean, it's hard to keep up with doors releases, you know, he, he sort of kicked. Well, that's the thing. They talk about flooding the market. I mean, Sugarman said we don't flood the market, but uh, the doors have flooded the market. I mean, look at that. They have re-released 13. They re, they put out that Japanese reissue of the golden album. They've just put out the matrix I mean, if there's something coming in November, I mean, man, that's pretty soon. Talk about not wanting to flood the market. Hey, those are pretty vinyls, though. They put them on pretty color vinyls. I think the the 13 was a nice blue and white mix. And, you know, the Golden Album, of course, it was, well, it was was red vinyl. Uh, I don't don't get that one. But (laughs) I I don't understand that. Why release the Golden Album and and put it on red vinyl? Electra Red, I guess that's the, the rationale. I don't know. I guess... I guess we could always, what we can imagine is that, especially if you read Jan Paul's website, he's obviously a clever guy and they're going to capitalize on, uh, I mean, what you, if we think about music and the way we consume music now, how is the way we consume music going to change in the next five years or ten years? And Jan Paul has always been on top of that, I think. The Doors are always in touch with that. And the reason they're selling records is because records are popular now. 
but there'll be a time when records aren't popular and there'll be a time when reaching a younger audience will happen or a new audience will happen through a different medium. And that's why they tried to get the Doors music in video games over the years and that's why they did a bunch of uh, very average Riders on the Storm remixes in 2002, which took up a whole bonus disc of a um, greatest hits that came out then. I mean, you know, they're always going to do what seems like the best thing to do for the time. And so I don't know what the future of media is. It's probably something streaming in high quality. But if it's if it exists, the doors will be there. And at the moment, they're releasing a lot of vinyl discs because that's where the, the 18,000 product-buying fans are. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so wherever those product-buying fans are going to be, that's where the doors will be. Yeah, and I guess the best way to end this podcast, we've done a lot of speculation. We've done a lot of, uh, you know, sort of guessing what's next. The best thing way to end this, I guess, is that the future is uncertain in the end. It's definitely always near. So, Travis, again, thank you. Maybe me and you might have something out within the next 10 years together. <laughs> Maybe in the next 10 years. So we're going to follow the Doors model on that. Me and him have have some cool stuff coming down the pipeline. Uh, we'll release in the next 10 years, promise. Uh, and, you know, it, whatever we put out is going to be um, in line with the old Doors philosophy, which is warts and all. You're gonna see all the you're gonna see all the scuff marks and on everything. You're gonna hear all the dirt. Yeah, yeah. No matter where you know, I mean, from, I mean, that's the cool thing about the doors, though. From the from the coasts of the of the Boston Bay, you know, down all the way through, you know, the dirty South. Uh, shout out to Reed Berrickman of the Dirty Doors through the Midwest, through Arizona, all those places, you know, out to the West Coast. They're they're everywhere, man. The doors are everywhere. So. Travis, man, thank you again, and hopefully we release that sooner than later. Who knows? Who knows? But uh, we're on the Doors model right now. We're on a 10-year plan. So, uh, yeah, that's what we're on right now. But, hey, Travis, I really do consider you a great friend now through all our talks, through everything. I appreciate someone as knowledgeable as yourself coming on to help. Uh, I, I know sometimes we can seem like curmudgeons as Door fans, but we both do love this music. We love the band. If we didn't love it so much, uh, we wouldn't critique it so much and we wouldn't, you know, be as involved as we are. So I, I appreciate your fandom, man. It's, it's something that, uh, definitely shows through. And I hope that it shows through this podcast that we love the band and we love everything they do. We love the releases. And even though we may, it may not be a release for us sometimes, uh, we're here. I'm here for it no matter what, you know, I think, I think the essence of Jim Morrison's message, if you could, sum it up to one thing, which it can't be, but the essence of that message is to to get to know yourself and to be honest with yourself about who you are because that's at the core of his message. And uh, so if we can't be honest about our interpretations of the music and hold them to account when they're terrible and when they're great, then we're not following in the philosophy of Jim Morrison. And I think that that is where all serious fans are at, even if they don't know it they are deeply uh, adherent to the philosophy of Jim Morrison, which is understanding of self, which involves being honest with yourself. And the doors are like old friends to us all, you know, and there's that other quote that's attributed to Jim Morrison a lot, and I don't know if it's actually true or not, but the quote is a friend is someone who lets you be 
who you are, lets you be yourself. And I haven't heard him say that, but I see it around the internet a lot. So it could be one of those things that Reed points out as being, uh, you know, a false Jim Morrison quote. But nonetheless, it is in line with Morrison's philosophy, I think. Yeah, and and another thing, I don't want to gatekeep. If you're if you're like a fourteen year old TikToker, finding them on TikTok, man, uh, I'm glad you're a Doors fan. If you're, you know, eighty years old and you know you're there from the beginning, it's great. You're a Doors fan. I hope that everybody feels feels like this is their music. At one time, I think I wanted to gatekeep some of this stuff, wrongfully so, when I thought like this was my music. I guess you know, I think we all sort of go through a phase like that. But ultimately now, man, it's just about spreading awareness. I think that's be yourself, man. Listen to the doors and enjoy the music and enjoy this Matrix tape release. Even if we don't have the banter, I think this is the best Matrix tape release we have out there. So go out there, enjoy it. Get the LP box set. Uh, It looks great. A great, uh, I mean, it's beautiful packaging, man. (laughs) John Densmore, I don't know if you've seen his. He did a very half-assed unboxing of it on Twitter. It's like 21 seconds. He just opens the lid he he flip he don't even look through the liner notes he flips them out of the way he goes albums and he like shuts it back like it's it's literally so bare bones so i haven't seen that and it's a real shame because the two standout tracks are of course the unreleased instrumental jams and they are two jazz classics all blues and bags groove densmore shines on the drums morrison can be heard playing some sort of percussion instrument in the background i mean why wouldn't he why wouldn't he talk about that in his book yeah did he really? And why wouldn't he talk about that? Those two instrumentals are fantastic, and in my opinion, they are the only two reasons to buy this set. I mean, yeah, okay, it sounds amazing, and you can have the whole thing in one place, but you know what? It's been out there for a long time now. Those two songs are the main reason to get this set, and they do not disappoint. I think they are brilliant. I think they're better than the Summertime instrumental, and they contain the kernels of many Doors ideas scattered throughout. A lot of little instrumental trills and fills that you hear throughout the Doors career you'll hear in the in the Matrix tapes during Bags Groove and All Blues. These are the origins of the Doors instrumental sound. We talk about Jim Morrison a lot, but, uh, you know, these tracks illustrate the mastery of the three Doors who were playing the instruments and where their ideas were born and where they expanded from, and I think we cannot overlook that. Yeah, I mean that's a great way to end it, man. Well, thank thanks Travis again for joining me, and uh, we'll, we'll I'm sure we'll see you down the road. I'd love to talk about Miami bootlegs one day, uh, and even the weird the weird bit that uh, that that they were released on that '97 box set, man. I mean that was so strange to me too. We'll talk about that one day, but uh, until yeah, we could do a whole episode on Miami for sure. Yeah, yeah, maybe I can get us a guest from Miami in to do that. Who knows? <laughs> that's another little hint there. I, I, I don't know if anybody's going to get this. Probably not. But anyway, Travis, man, thank you for all this, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Brad. Thank you again to Travis Williamson. You can find this podcast on Twitter at the doors pod and on Facebook by searching for opening the doors. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for guests, you can send an email to opening the doors pod at gmail.com. I want to give a special thanks to podcast consultant, Jim Cherry, who authored The Doors Examined and The Last Stage. I also want to thank DoorsHistory.com and The Mild Equator for information used throughout the show. A special thanks also to Reed Berrickman of The Dirty Doors for additional research. The music for this podcast was done by Christian Cornejo of the Jimbo Tribute Band from South America. I hope to meet you back here in two weeks. But until then, keep the doors open and the music loud.